Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou el horihori. Hei hōtaka e pānaki te putaio, te taio, mei te kaupapa o te ora. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. And now, we've an interview with an outspoken scientist who often goes public with his research and his concerns. Corey Bradshaw began his science career studying New Zealand fur seals. These days, he's the Sir Hubert Wilkins Chair of Climate Change at the University of Adelaide in Australia. Corey spends his time considering the future of humanity and the natural world in the face of climate change and a rapidly rising global population. I caught up with him in Dunedin last month to hear his thoughts on the important issues we are all facing, some of which he wrote about in a recent open letter to his nine-year-old daughter. The letter essentially encompasses my bit of a contradiction, really, because on the one hand, I have uh, a job to do that is to chronicle and measure and predict how environments change, and climate change is one component of that, and... On the other hand, I have a small family, my daughter, who I want to you know, nourish and, and, and teach about her future possibilities and potentials. But my job, whenever I go into the office, is full of basically bad news. There, there isn't a lot of good news in what I do. And I said you know, in, in the letter that there's no single metric of whether it be biodiversity, uh, conservation, or pollution indices or deforestation rates that's improving. I mean, we have small successes here and there. Someone pointed out later that, you know, whales have recovered since hunting. That's true. But the overall health of the oceans is is declined drastically. So, you know, we might have some small wins. I always say we, we might make one step forward, but probably 20 back simultaneously. We have more whales, but they have more plastic to swim through. Yes, exactly. And single species wins are encouraging, but but the, the, the bigger picture is very depressing. So depressing that it's actually affected my mental state. You know, when you're constantly bombarded with depressing news, it, it depresses you. And I want, to, I want to filter that up from my daughter. Clearly, she's nine years old. She is an ebullient, joyful person. And like any parent, you want to encourage that future potential and, the, and the, that happiness and that that naivety of being able to do anything and she has all of those potentials but when you know when i look at the world around her i think what what am i doing what how can i do this on the one hand encourage her to flourish in in a in a world i think is declining even faster than i could have predicted and so part of that is being truthful i remember telling her the first time that people cut down trees and she was incensed. She was angry. I remember her actually clenching her fists and saying that she ever caught anyone doing that. She would be very, very upset with them and probably do nasty things. She also takes mixed martial arts. So she's, she likes a bit of a fight. (laughs) And 
that was the first inkling that you know we've in, we've instilled within her some concept of of conservation and of nature appreciation, which I think is lacking from most of society in my own country in Australia. It's one of the most urbanized places on the planet. And so we have this huge disconnect from the natural world around us. We don't know where our food comes from. People don't understand how food is made. The single most important preoccupation of humanity is, is making its own food. Yet most of the planet has no idea how's that, how that's done, what it costs, the energy required to do so, the transportation. They just want their products now. They want mangoes in July from Mexico just like they don't understand how electricity is made or how the limitations of transport and ancillary services, demand matching. These major decisions about future sustainability are so detached from everyday life because we have not implemented the approaches that will make people, and we have a fairly educated society, but we, we aren't putting this information or teaching people how to think logically about it so you've begun this as a, a gentle, private conversation with your daughter, but you've also escalated it because it was an open letter. You published it. Why did you do that? If I've done my job right as a parent, I think the installation or encouragement of those values that I hold dear, the understanding that our future is fragile and if we don't make the right decisions, it's going to be even more fragile or we'll lose resilience at the very least and that these sorts of values have to be perpetuated and taught to our peers, then I've done my job. And that was the question, whether we talk about these things when she's an adult, when she's capable of handling this, or, or we do a gentle introduction and make sure that she's prepared for these issues when um, she is a functioning adult in normal society. It's interesting because... It's not only not a conversation we're having with our children, though. It's not even a conversation we're having with each other as mature adults, I don't think. True, yeah. We have the information, but it's very piecemeal, and most people haven't been able to digest the entirety of the of the issue. Now, I'm focusing, from my, my perspective, mostly on the carbon emissions mitigation side of things, as well as the implications of a warming planet for all of biodiversity, so including agriculture... Within particular industries or in particular government strategies, we're all trying to grapple with particular components of a changing world. But it's not planned, universal approach. We, we tend to focus on the particulars of our, of our interest or our expertise. And most people, um, let's face it, they, they, they don't necessarily spend most of their time contemplating the what-ifs of the future. They, they, it's the day-to-day -day grind, you know. Make sure there's food on the table. Make sure that you um, uh, have some entertainment. Uh, get your kids to school on time. Be productive in your job. Uh, gain, a, gain a reasonable salary and enjoy life. And when we have the luxuries uh, of being able to achieve all of those things and in our Western society, most of us do do that, we can have a bit of time to contemplate what the future may be. And if it's scary, we tend to shut down. And I think we say, oh, this is... This is far too much for me to, to contemplate, and I don't necessarily want to impart any bad news to my children. I mean, there's enough bad news in the world. Let's just let's just move on. And we might do the right thing. We'll recycle here, or we'll put solar panels there, or we'll eat vegetarian three nights a week or, instead of having meat all the time. Or, you know, we'll do our little part, 
but we forget about the bigger picture. We th we forget about the the fact that you know Australia, for example, is the one of the highest per capita emitters of of carbon dioxide in the world. We have mostly fossil fuel based electricity production, mostly coal, and we will have to reduce our per capita emissions by about 10 times to 2050 if we want to get even close to what New Zealand's doing now because we don't have a lot of hydro and you know I look at different ways of meeting these kinds of future targets for reductions and it's right now the way the the Australian system is set up and the intransigence of our political system I can't see that being possible within the next 34 years it just doesn't seem uh, that we'll ever get down to anything near what New Zealand's doing now, that we have to be worldwide, it's not just Australia, um, without a major change in both our electricity production uh, frame as well as our transport network. So if climate change and actually meeting that ambitious global target of let's not allow warming to be more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above what it used to be, how on earth are we going to do that then? Well, you know, this is where um, things can be a little bit controversial, especially, you know, if you look at most of my value system and what I work on, I would be classified as fairly green and fairly left. But one of the things I do advocate quite strongly is that if we're going to get anywhere near a capacity to reduce emissions to what we need to, we're going to have to look at uh, things like nuclear power. Big way. I mean, there are 63 nuclear reactors being built right now. Um, China is sort of one of the leaders of the pack there because I don't know if many people have been to China. I, I go there often for work and it's often dangerous to go outside of the hotel room because of the particulate matter in the air. The pollution is unbelievable. So this is from the coal-fired power stations? It's, it's from coal-fired power stations. It's from traffic. It's also from dust storms, from uh, erosion and bad agricultural practices. There's a lot of particulate matter in the air. And, you know... I wouldn't necessarily suggest that the, the Chinese aren't good global citizens, but the main reason they're doing this isn't to reduce the, the, the warming potential of the planet. They're doing it because people can't breathe. If there ever was a good lesson for people to learn about what the future may hold in terms of environmental degradation, they should spend a bit of time in China uh, because their backs are against the wall and it's been put there by its huge population and its massive uh, transformation of its economy. And I mean, India is doing similar uh, similar things. They're having massive pollution problems. The the, um, the the disease burden is so high because, well, lack of basic things like sanitation. That's also a country that is right in the the heart of some of the worst ravages of warming that we're seeing. We're seeing some of the highest temperatures on the planet in India these days. And you have a population that's not much smaller than China's and probably will overtake it within the next 20 or 30 years. Resource scarcity and competition will be at our doorstep more and more as we continue to degrade our environments. And unless we think very clearly and cleverly about how to avoid the worst of that, we're going to put our children into a situation that probably hasn't been seen since the last few world wars. And I don't want my daughter to go through that. I don't want her to have to experience a world war. Of course not. No one would want that. But I, you know, ironically today, we live in some of this, it's the, one of the safest periods of human history. The number of people dying, dying violently from uh, warfare 
is the lowest it's ever been as a proportion. However, I think we're in a bit of a lull before the storm. And I think the immigration crisis is, is the first real canary in a coal mine uh, about the uh, oncoming confrontations that will happen because of resource competition. And it's, it's, it's something I study in almost all species. Uh, it's called density feedback. What happens is that once, you, once a population gets large enough, the, there is inevitable competition between individuals uh, for food or for shelter or for even mates, mate acquisition. And in most populations, as they approach the, what we call the carrying capacity, how much their environment can support, you get a reduction in individual survival rates, you get lowering fertility, um, and you get uh, generally a higher incidence of catastrophic mortalities which tends to put the population back to a lower population density. And so, so it's a kind of, it, it's constantly pulled back to this kind of equilibrium. In fact, all fisheries models, for example, are based on the assumption that if you reduce the fish population enough, then the average fertility and survival will increase so you can offtake more. Turns out it's not as easy to do that as some might think. But from bacteria to elephants and everything in between, all have density feedback. Now, the one thing that differentiates us from the rest of biodiversity is that we can artificially increase our carrying capacity through technological innovation. And we have done pretty much since we first stepped out of the trees, you know, with the use of tools. And we're constantly pushing the boundaries. But, you know... But is it going to be our saviour in the future, though? That's, pos that's possible that it will um, help us mitigate. I mean, if we could get to a point where we, our technology was advanced enough that we could actually take uh, greenhouse gas emissions out of the atmosphere at a, at a great enough scale and fast enough rate, we might be able to give ourselves more time. And we could potentially... Uh, use a greater array of, of fossil fuel resources without increasing the warming potential. But that's still a bit fantastical. Um, we do have technological innovation now that allows us to produce low emissions electricity, yet um, we don't necessarily embrace them, getting back to the nuclear power issue for, for various reasons, which I won't go into much today. But if you look at Oil is a good example. The first oil wells were dug something in the vicinity of 10 meters below the surface 200 years ago. Now we're, we're drilling several kilometers in the earth crust, five kilometers under the seafloor. So the return on our investment now is much, much lower. So every person you add to the planet, the, the resources required to keep them alive and living the kind of lifestyle that they aspire to requires a much, much exponentially greater exploitation of the resources around them. Think of agricultural yields. We've already, hundreds of years ago, put the farms in the best places, the most fertile soils. So to grow extra food, we're continually planting and exploiting more and more marginal land. We keep putting houses on good soils and as we, well. And we don't make smart decisions about where we put our housing, no. I mean, South Australia, the best soils are under a, a village just outside of where I live, full of housing developments. And we don't have great soils in Australia, you know, 250 million years since any significant glaciation and not much volcanism. So we have extremely depleted soils. <laughs> so I'm getting depressed on this conversation, but can I just pick you up on one point? You talked about oil there. Uh, I saw an interesting figure just yesterday, which is that world oil production at the moment is just about as high as it's been. Like we are on 
rushing to put as much oil out there as we can. At the same time as we're hearing about unburnable carbon, people saying we should be stopping using coal and oil because we really can't keep pouring carbon into the atmosphere. There's a real disconnect between what we know we ought to do, but actually what we are doing. Yeah, and I think society tends to resist change. I mean, the system is set up in a certain way. Um, there's a certain flow of money. There's an expectation on the stock, stock markets. There's uh, holdings and, and investment in mining companies and oil exploration companies. And to change that overnight and say, right, we're not going to do that is is almost unthinkable. It takes usually a crisis for something of that global magnitude to change. And yes, we're making small gains in, in our renewable penetrations, and that's fantastic. But as you say, oil production, that's one of its highest. There are some encouraging movements. For example, the divestment of fossil fuels from various uh, investment portfolios. My superannuation, for example, I have divested from all of my fossil fuel interests by choosing a package that is considered more environmentally aware, and anyone can do that. But you have major global uh, fossil fuel industry giants collapsing around us. I mean, Peabody in, in the US is a, is a great recent example of that. So I think we're getting to the point where, where those kind of investments will switch. Uh, but we still have this uh, momentum, this market and economic momentum to keeping the status quo. So it the underlying issue is the economy. Oh, absolutely. I think the, the economics will trigger most of these changes. Why haven't uh, there been major changes towards uh, higher renewable penetration? Because it's expensive and we don't necessarily have the infrastructure to do it. We also have political reticence to change. People, you know, especially in political systems, we don't like to change things too much too fast. There are historical precedences for massive change. You look at what happened in particular in the U.S. after the Second World War, they completely transformed their economy and their political system within about eight years. And they, it was a necessity from the extreme resource scarcities that happened after the Second World War. But that took a war to elicit. Now, I'm not saying all of those innovations in the long run were, were the best choices for the environment, but at the time they were best for increasing the well-being of their populations. We have to think beyond... Now we have to think about our children and our, you know, and the subsequent generations, and that's what I'm trying to do. And it's very difficult for us to think about what's going to happen next year, let alone 20, 30 years down the track. But that's just the issue right now: is that the, the change in our planet is so rapid. We haven't seen climate change this rapid, at least for the last 2.5 million years. We're seeing even more rapid change against a very degraded template. So we have decades to act, not centuries. And this is what I think escapes people saying, oh, eventually we'll sort of adapt and we'll get with it. And there might be some downturns and upturns, but we'll, yes, we'll survive, but we won't survive in the way that we're surviving now. And I think there's certainly no danger that humans will go extinct anytime soon, but there's certainly a strong danger of our well-being being degraded to the point where we can't even conceive now. What you're really saying, though, is that if you're going to deal with climate change, and let's bring it back to that, it's not actually just enough to deal with the carbon. It's a multifaceted conversation that touches on politics, it touches on the economy, it touches on population, it touches on... Agriculture. Agriculture and environmental degradation, what the planet can actually produce to keep us alive. 
it is actually a big, tricky conversation. It is, and, and you know, complex problems require complex solutions. And as a scientist, it's it's something that's really tried. I've tried to transform in the way I do work is that I can't simply sit, sit in my particular disciplinary silo and do my work on you know how the butterfly population changed after there was this bit of forest fragmentation, or I can't simply uh, look at how to create algae in a container that will absorb carbon dioxide, whatever your discipline might be, it's going to require massive transdisciplinarity, not just cross-disciplinarity, which means that scientists are going to have to get out of their comfort zones and start not just working with uh, experts in other fields, but starting to work across those boundaries and working in different fields themselves. I, I'm a, a trained uh, biologist, um, but because of my mathematical abilities, I've started to get into electrical modeling. So looking at electricity production, I work with paleontologists, I work with uh, geochronologists, I work with climatologists and do some of that myself. And you to, to look at, the, for example, the energy production um, and agriculture nexus requires agronomists, requires climatologists, requires uh, physicists, requires engineers. And if we don't work together and have that funded, now it's always, um, I think people get a, groan a little bit when scientists uh, complain about funding. But the funding models aren't set up right now to promote that kind of transdisciplinarity. They're very field specific, very discipline specific. But our, our planet is is very stressed by a complex set of problems, as you outlined. And unless we have very complex uh, solutions that will require many, many experts and a funding model that sits behind that to, to promote that kind of uh, engagement, we're not going to come up with the global scale solutions that we need. We're going to constantly have these little fixes, but grander failures. And that's what concerns me is that we're not using our expertise. Humans are incredibly clever, but they're terribly disorganized. <laughs> okay, so that's what you think scientists should be doing. What about me as an ordinary citizen? I'm concerned about things. I put out my recycling. I walk to work instead of driving the car. But beyond that, don't really feel like I'm achieving a great deal. So how do you make it meaningful so that it, that people like me can go this is something I should be paying attention to. I'm not just going to go and hide because it's too complicated and that I can actually do something meaningful. So getting, getting the money out of politics, I think, is something we should all be pushing for. Uh, other things, uh, for example, we should be willing to put all of our energy options on the table. Quite a number of things we can also promote is uh, a little bit more uh, ecology and, and agronomy within our education. Understanding where our food comes from and the limitations of its production are essential. We're... 7.3 billion now will be exceeding 9 billion by 2050 and possibly 12 billion by the end of the century with no decline in sight. And uh, I've done some work showing that uh, it's a century scale issue. Even if we do capitalize on, you know, fertility reduction uh, or, or family planning is the proper way to say it. And so that's a long term scale. But we have, as I said, we don't have centuries to deal with these issues. So we're going to have to double our food yield by 2050 just to keep the same levels of malnutrition we have today. And if people, as they move towards a Western diet, it's probably 250% production. Yet our pollinators, our bees around the world, are declining at an at a alarming rate. So our pollination is going down. Human population is going up. Our yields have to increase at the expense of our natural systems and the species that keep this planet moving ahead and living. 
agriculture is so essential. So things like, you know, vertical farming, which are incredibly energy intensive. You see where all these things connect uh, and the production of high quantities of cheap and low emissions electricity so that we're able to do this are essential. So the engineering and the agriculture and the economics all sort of come together in all this. What we can do is promote uh, a more holistic education on these sides right from you know primary school up and through our universities. I also think we need to think very clearly about promoting gender equality across the planet. I mean, we, we don't even have gender equality in Western societies, let alone in places that are still developing. So putting the money and the decision-making power into female hands is a, a very long, good long-term prospect for more equality on the planet, both in terms of um, gender equality, but also in terms of generational equality. And I think the other thing that one can do is never underestimate the power of uh, at least embracing a, a, a partial vegetarianism. Uh, we have a system based on a, one of the most inefficient forms of food production, and it it is it makes a lot of sense, even if you do it only a couple of times a week, to, to reduce your meat consumption. Now, that sounds like a small thing, but it's actually rather large on a global scale. So there's there's lots of little things. I think essentially promoting better political leadership through through a better democratic system is the, the easiest and fastest thing we can do. That was Corey Bradshaw from the University of Adelaide. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.